So please, we get to launch this uh, series together called Rebuild. And uh, all of us will find ourselves in the rebuilding process several times over the course of our lives. I remember one time that Chris and I found ourselves in the rebuilding process. Our oldest had gone off to college. My, our sons, they were uh, like late high school age, both driving. And I remember the day, pulled into our garage after work, early evening, walked into the house. There's Chris sitting at the dining room table. The house was kind of quiet. And I said, hey, where is everybody? And Chris goes, <clears throat> we are everybody. I remember that moment because it was kind of like the front edge of empty nest. Now listen, if our daughter was 19 at the time, what that means is, is that our lives together had been driven by this child raising thing for like 19 years. Even when we went out for a date night, we'd be sitting at a table at a restaurant across the table from each other, and it's like we were business partners. And the business that sat in the middle of the table between us was Sarah, Andrew, and Alex. And suddenly our children deserted us. They did come back from time to time, but they deserted us. And I'm looking at Chris and we're kind of going, hey, uh, we used to date, right? And it was kind of like, who were we now without them? And it was just one of those times where I realized it's not like you figure out marriage once and you get it solved. It's like you're trying to figure it out when you get preschools, and then you're trying to figure it out when you have middle schoolers, and then you're trying to figure out when it's the two of you again. That was one of the rebuilding seasons for us, and it was not short, it was not brief, and it was not uncomplicated. That was not my first rebuilding moment. The first rebuilding moment I remember was sophomore year in high school. Tenth grader, cross-country move, new city, new school, new church, new friends, and it was that opportunity in the fall of my sophomore year where God began to recapture my heart as I got involved with a thriving youth group as a tenth grader, and it was, it was time to rebuild, but all of us will find ourselves there at one time or another, or at least we should. Rebuilding a marriage, rebuilding financial discipline, rebuilding spiritual habits after a season of drift. There's a remarriage and two families merge together and you find yourselves building, rebuilding. And then there's rebuilding after the loss of a husband or a wife due to a death or divorce. Sometimes it's simply rebuilding hope after like a major disappointment that just knocks you out. But all of us should find ourselves in this rebuilding season from time to time. In fact, if you don't ever rebuild, Chances are you're stuck and you might be missing out on some life-giving movement that's right in front of you. Let me say that again. If you never engage in the rebuilding process, chances are you're in a rut, you're stuck, and you might be missing out 
on some beautiful life-giving movement that your gracious God has for you. And so for six weeks, our fall series, Rebuild, we're gonna jump into this rebuilding topic and we're gonna be following an epic story from our Bible. It's a guy by the name of Nehemiah who lived like 400 years before the time of Jesus. And you would find his story in the Old Testament of your Bible. Uh, by the way, just I want a, sh- a show of hands here in your uh, campuses, uh, raise your hands too. Uh, how many of you remember this logo? from a few years back, rebuilding a life from the story of Nehemiah. Can I see your hands? My dear friends, 10 years ago. Exactly 10 years ago. It was fall, 2013. We opened to the story of Nehemiah, tracked the story for several weeks. So even if you were with us 10 years ago, listen, the story's the same. I bet you you're in different space and need to receive this information on a new and different level. So we're gonna be jumping into the story of Nehemiah. And uh, let me give some, uh, it's kind of the backdrop, the historic backdrop, which you really have to grasp in order to fully appreciate what this man is facing in his leadership journey. And so uh, let's begin just with a, with a map here. Over on the east, uh, or the right-hand side, you see Susa. Susa is a, one of the headquarters of the Persian Empire. And over on the right there, you see Jerusalem, which was the homeland and the capital of the Jewish people where the Jewish temple had been. Now, preceding the time of Nehemiah, there had been three critical disruptive events. And so I, we've, I've reduced these just to three words, and the three words are war, exile, and return. There had been a war with the Babylonian Empire. 587 BC, the Babylonians swooped down to Jerusalem and destroy it. I'm talking burn the great temple of Jerusalem to the ground, turn the walls of the city into rubble. And you're thinking, yeah, well, obviously after the war, people started to rebuild. No, they weren't there. That's word number two, exile. Because Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, had a philosophy of deportation. That is, after he conquered you, he would take most of the people in your country and spread you out throughout his empire. The idea was, in order to keep people from getting like hyper-patriotic, just take them out of their country. And so when you get to the, in fact, uh, if you want to look this up, it's called the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonian captivity, the exile that takes place after the war. Most of the Jewish people are not living in Israel anymore as of that point. It's the exile. But then the word, word number three is return. A war, exile, return. Uh, things turned on the world stage. The Babylonians in turn were conquered by the Medes and the Persian, the Media Persian Empire. And Cyrus, the king of the Medes, he had a philosophy of appeasement. If you want to keep people happy, let them return back home to their ancestral homes, to their ancestral cities, to their ancestral gods and restore and rebuild their temples. So under Cyrus, decades after that war and after the exile, Jews start to trickle back to Jerusalem. The the massive amount of the people, the majority did not return. That wasn't your home. That was your grandparents' home. Most people stayed where they were, but Jews began to trickle back to Israel. And so the question is, how, how is the rebuilding project going? Because when you return to Israel, it's, the glory days were gone. And they had to kind of put the pieces back together. So, 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 so Nehemiah, there are some, he's living in Susa, the, one of the centers of the Persian government. And friends arrive from Jerusalem, and he's like, 
how's it going there? Uh, how are things going? He wants the news of the progress. And uh, this unfolds right out of the gate in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter one, verse two, if you're following along, Han and I, one of my brothers, it's like he's his blood brother or a relative, came from Judah, that's where Jerusalem was, with some other men, and I questioned them. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. How are things going? How is the city thriving? How are the people doing? They're gonna answer his question and their answer is going to be devastating. Their answer is just gonna, dev- he, just, he just kind of crumbles when he hears the news. And it's this news, this bad news about how people are doing that will send Nehemiah on his journey to rebuild the city and to rebuild the walls. And so the important thing about our conversation today as we explore Nehemiah chapter one together is it's it's before the building project begins. It's the heart work that needs to happen that kind of motivates and moves Nehemiah toward this project. And so the importance of this today is at the top of our conversation, when I just said, I wonder how many of you have found yourself in a rebuilding season. I just know how many of you would go, yeah, and that's like right now for us. Jeff, it's like we're trying to rebuild something right now, but we don't even know how to start. We know we need to move on this rebuild thing. We don't even know where to begin. The power of today's conversation is that it gives us some really helpful clues about how to at least begin the journey toward rebuilding. And so as we walk through the chapter today, Nehemiah chapter one, we're just gonna unfold it in two parts. Two parts. Part one of the conversation has to do with disruption. Nehemiah's disruption. These friends arrive from Israel. He goes, hey, how are the people doing? How is the city going? And in verse three, they answer. It says, they said to me, those who survived the exile... And those who are back in the province, in two words, they are in great trouble and disgrace. Trouble and disgrace. It is hard, it is troublesome, and it is just shame-filled disgrace. They're just in shame and in trouble, and then they build on this. They go, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. This wasn't new news that had happened generations before. The walls are rubble, and where gates should be, there's just these gaping holes. But what the news was is that the people still hadn't rebuilt. Now, uh, world-class cities today do not require walls around them. There's no wall surrounding the city of Grand Rapids. But back in the day, if you had any city of significance, it was fortified by a wall. In case of war, area warlords, bandits, whatever, you would have a fortified city. So, uh, I mean, this uh, image right here is just a a picture of uh, an older wall in Jerusalem that exists there today. This was standard. A wall meant protection. A wall meant safety. A wall meant security. A wall that was a pile of rubble meant vulnerability, meant that you weren't safe insecure, not much of a city at all. 
So how's Nehemiah gonna receive these news, this news? I think he's gonna go, yeah, oh my goodness, you know, that's a bummer. That's just, ah, oh, that's disappointing. No, the dude like collapses. I mean, check this out. He tells us his response. He says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. It's like he's having the conversation standing up and it's like he literally like sits on the ground and he starts crying. Does that seem over the top to you? Grown man, grown man, emotionally healthy. He's a governmental leader. He hears this news, he sits down and starts to cry. What's up with that? I think part of the thing that was most disruptive to Nehemiah was not only the condition of the city of Jerusalem, but the condition of the city of Jerusalem in contrast to what the city was supposed to be. Back to the map, the city of Jerusalem. What, what, what was Jerusalem supposed to be? Centuries before the time of Nehemiah, the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. A leader arrives by the name of Moses, comes to Pharaoh, let my people go. Leads them in something that's called the exodus, the exit out of Egypt toward the land of promise. They get out into the desert, and there at the desert, they arrive at Mount Sinai, and Moses receives the Ten Commandments. Now, the, 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 the Ten Commandments were guidelines for these people in how they were to connect with God and how they were connect socially with each other. Commandment number one, no other gods. It's like the creator is saying, I want to be your one and only God. Don't make some statue out of a block of wood and bow down to it and say, that's me. It's insulting. You can't limit me to a hunk of wood or a hunk of metal. No other gods. But then there's how there was community was supposed to operate with each other. Their city streets were supposed to be safe. You shall not murder. You shouldn't have to lock your door. You shall not steal, respect each other's property. Honor your mom and dad. When you make marriage vows to each other, my goodness, keep those. No adultery. Don't covet. That's a weird one. No. Be careful what you want. Be careful of checking out everybody else's life and going like, why them and not me? Cultivate a contented spirit that has joy in the blessings you receive rather than an obsession with the blessings withheld. Listen, if Israel actually operated toward God and each other in this way, there would be nothing like it in the world. Nothing like it in the world. And the idea was, is that Israel, centered in Jerusalem, would be, and this is a term used in scripture, a light to the nations. That is, God says, if you follow me in this way and relate in this way, I will bless you, I will bless you, and people from the other nations will come to Jerusalem to see. They're gonna show up in Jerusalem and they're gonna say, I wanna know about your God. That was what Jerusalem was supposed to be. That Babylonian war, 587 BC, when the Babylonians come in and crush Jerusalem, burn the temple to the ground, 
preceding that, there was a Jewish king by the name of Manasseh, reigned for like 50 years, and it says this in our scriptures, that during the reign of Manasseh, Manasseh, the blood of innocent people flowed from one end of the city to the other. Jerusalem had turned into a horror show of corruption, of murder, of threats. And now it's just a pile of, the walls are a pile of rubble. Nehemiah grieves like this, not simply because of the condition, but the condition in contrast to what it was supposed to have been, this light to the nations. And this is totally disruptive to him. The beauty was gone. The wholeness was gone. The goodness of God. How are the people in Israel that have gone back? How are the exiles surviving? How is the city of Jerusalem? And they go, big trouble, shame, walls still in rubble, no gates. And he sits down and the dew starts to cry. What's pivotal about this, I think, is that often your journey toward rebuilding will require at least a bit of disruption. And the reason for this is that it is just so easy to get into a rut and kind of coast through life. So easy that it's almost like we need to get jolted by something in order to cause us to take a new direction in a rebuilding project. Uh, we, we need to have kind of a jarring event, incident, or conversation, or the path of sameness takes over. We almost need to be jolted by something, disrupted by something, in order to start a rebuilding project. Nehemiah will begin this because he is jolted by this news that is so disruptive in his life. I remember a conversation with younger friends, after high school, they, went the, they decided to go the college route. And then after college, they had moved to a city that they loved, and both of them had landed decent jobs, uh, salaried positions, as I recall. Now, two incomes, no kids, reasonable rent, fairly low expenses, Christmas rolled around, and they looked into their bank account from which they would purchase gifts for family members, and there was <laughs> nothing in it. They ended up using their credit card to buy a few hundred dollars in Christmas presents. Now, here's the deal. In college, they were broke. They understood that. Now, two salaries, and they were broke. The jarring event in their life, what they were jolted by is that every single penny that was coming in was going out and they had no clue where. They were just bleeding cash. The moment that they came to when they realized every penny coming in is going out, we can't even put our hands on 300 bucks. That was the jolt that they needed to sit down and to begin to think through a spending plan that was thoughtful, but they needed disruption in order to do that. This is the 15-year-old. This is the 15-year-old who gets walloped one day with the realization that the more time she spends on social media, the more depressed she becomes, the more left out she feels, 
and the more unattractive she feels. And she is not an unattractive young woman. And she goes, this is insanity. And she begins through this jolt, through this disruption, to rethink her relationship with her phone. But the path of sameness is just so magnetic, this inertia, that you almost have to experience disruption or you just never, you never begin to rebuild aspects of your life. This is the <clears throat> incident that happened while intoxicated that gets you to rethink your relationship with alcohol. It's the guy that goes into the doctor. And he's going, man, I'm just not, uh, not, I'm not feeling that well. I feel kind of weird. Doctor goes, yeah, you should. You have diabetes. And the guy's fairly young. He has school-age kids. The doctor looks at him, has a very firm conversation. If you want to be around for your children, and if you want to be around when they graduate from high school and then be around maybe for grandchildren someday, you need to change your habits. That conversation can serve as a disruption to begin rebuilding life in a different way. But my dear friends, disruption does not necessarily propel you into a rebuilding process. It is possible to ignore disruption after disruption after disruption. To get kind of jolted again and again and not begin the rebuild. My plea for you today. Please pay attention to these disruptions. Particularly if you sense that God is attempting to disrupt a behavior, a practice, a way you've been living. Please don't ignore it. Please use that disruption to begin, to begin moving toward whatever a rebuild looks like for you. Now, Nehemiah, you think, okay, here's this disruption. He's going to climb on a horse. He's going to head to Jerusalem. He's going to galvanize people. He's going to organize them. They're going to start rebuilding the wall. No. That will happen ultimately. It's not what happens next. What happens next is something highly unexpected. What happens next is that Nehemiah prays. And it's unexpected because Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, is an action movie. It's about leadership, speeches to get people moving, people throwing themselves on a project, threats, accusations, endurance, pushing through. It really is an action movie. And here, it's like you have a timeout and you, you, have, you have a prayer. In fact, Nehemiah says, I sat down, I cried, I fasted. He starts skipping meals and prayed for some days. Then and he chronicles for us exactly what his prayer was was. So uh, two parts of our conversation. The first part is uh, Nehemiah's disruption. The second part is just Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's prayer. And he itemizes exactly what he said in his prayer. This should be very helpful for those of us. Call this the rebuilder's prayer. Now, I need to move back to, to last week for a second. Last week, we showed a picture of a, of a uh, it's like a, a pitcher pouring water out. We're talking about Hannah, how she came to the tabernacle, poured out her heart to God. And I said, sometimes these prayers can be messy as you pour yourself out. God, I'm just, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm just so discouraged by the way people uh, behave. I'm starting to get cynical and I'm tired of waiting. And I feel like I'm trapped in the waiting room and uh, you know other people's names are called and not mine. I feel like you forgot me. So I just described this kind of pouring out as kind of like this, this messy gushing. And I know some of you are sitting out there going like, mm, thank you, Pastor Banyan, but could you please give us some structure? <laughs> okay, here's the structure. 
in Nehemiah's prayer, I think for days, he's just been pouring himself out. And now he goes, okay. And he actually organizes a prayer to God. There's four parts to his prayer, right? But if prayer is like conversation with God, talking to God, the prayer cannot be reduced to four bullet points. But I think these are four awesome things to latch onto as a rebuilder's prayer. And secondly, of the four, it can be, it might be that you have kind of an aha moment with one or maybe two. My encouragement for you is to latch on to those. So maybe you want to like memorize the whole thing and implement the whole thing. But man, if you latch on to one or two, I think that's, I think that's good, positive movement. So first movement of his prayer, four movements. First movement of his prayer is just the address. And in the address, this is where he, this is where he addresses God. Uh, the technical term for this is an invocation right? Uh, this is where he begins in verse uh, 5. He says, then I said, check out how he addresses God. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and who keep his commands. And so he starts out just by saying, great and awesome God. It's kind of like saying, I believe you're capable. But the next thing he says as he keeps this address going is like, I believe that you're not only capable, I believe you're connected. So, verse six, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant, that's him, Nehemiah, is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. God, will you please open your eyes to my prayer? Will you please open your ears to my prayer? I believe you're this great and awesome God who can be deeply connected to human need. Great and awesome God of heaven, open your eyes, open your ears, hear my prayer, I'm praying. He believes that God is both capable and connected. This is huge. This is huge because your view of God, your view of God can impact, radically impact whether or not you pray. Uh, so back in the day, there's this a teacher and writer from, from another era. His name was A.W. Tozer. And Tozer is known for this quote that I find both profound and, and true. Tozer wrote this. Tozer wrote, uh, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What enters my mind when I think about God could be the most important thing about me. Because if I see approaching God with my needs as a warm, sympathetic father, that's one thing. If, I, if the image in my mind of approaching God is like being a middle schooler and being called to the principal's office, that's an entirely different image and picture that I need, that I need to fix, that I need to amend. So uh, after the time of Jesus, after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, uh, the people coaching new Christians, new believers in how to approach God worked on the vision of God that they had. So you would find this in Hebrews chapter four, where the writer said this. He says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may, what? Two things that are highlighted, that we may receive mercy, and what's the other one? 
Find grace when? To help us in our time of need. It's called the throne of grace in saying, Heavenly Father, you're approaching the grace throne. It's not called the throne of judgment. It's called the throne of grace. You may receive mercy and find grace in your time of need. Young Christians are being coached in their vision of this God. In much simpler terms, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, the guy who had been a career fisherman and follows Jesus for three years, as he was coaching young Christians, this is what he wrote. Uh, Peter wrote, cast your anxiety on him because take your fear and anxiety and throw it toward God because because he cares for you. The, the way that Nehemiah addresses God as capable and yet connected, hear my prayer, see my prayer, please dial into our need. All I'm saying is, is that in order to offer the builder's prayer, you might need to go to work a little bit on who you believe God to be in your guts. And not just what you'd write down on a theological quiz, but deep down inside who you believe him to be. Movement one of the prayer, the address. You're like, okay, awesome, great and awesome God, hear my prayer. Dude, get up, get on a horse, ride to Jerusalem and start this project. No, uh, Nehemiah now realizes there's some unfinished business. And what Nehemiah now has to kind of unfold is, okay, God, um, we like really messed up. We messed up huge. And it's not just other people, it's me too. So movement two of the prayer is a confession. So address and then confess. Uh, You find these words, I confess. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. It's not just them, man. It's not just them. It's, it's me. I confess the sins that happened in the days of Manasseh when the blood of the innocent flowed from one end of the city to the other. Those people ran from you and paid. He goes, yeah. Yeah. It's in here, and it's in my father's house. I confess the sins we Israelites, and this includes me, and this includes my family, have committed against you. My friends, this is powerful. I need to remind myself from time to time that the sin most likely to be my undoing is mine. He goes a level deeper. I mean, he's riffing on this. He goes, we have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands and decrees and laws that you gave your servant Moses. We just really messed up here. Now, I want to speak cautiously, and I want to speak graciously, and I want to speak firmly. Some of us are overdue for owning up with God. Confess, fessing up, confessing up, fessing up. Now, there's a lot of pain and heartache that can come your way that is not your fault. 
You're driving down the road, someone else is distracted, they blow through a red light, they cream your car, and now you're in uh, physical therapy. That wasn't your fault. Your parents' divorce? That wasn't your fault. The abuse that you experienced as a child. Look at me. That wasn't your fault. There's all kinds of pain and heartache that can enter our lives. And you're not to blame. And then there's the other stuff. I go, I gotta, I gotta own up to that. Yes, I was hurt. But then I nursed that hurt. I nursed that wound. I hung on to it. I refused to let it go. And it turned me a dark shade of bitter. And I gotta own up to that. I was totally obsessed with sports and recreation. And my spiritual life like totally took a back seat and I'm paying for it now. Throwing myself into sports and recreation, I just like was living as a practical atheist, like God didn't exist or have a role in my life. I need to own up to that. I need to own my spending habits. I need to own my drinking habits. I need to own my temper. I need to own my silence. I need to own my drift. I need to own my wayward heart. I need to own my critical judgmental spirit. I need to own that. The second movement of Nehemiah's prayer is confession. He just goes, we, we, just, we just messed up here. And for some of you, you will find this paralyzing. You will find this terrifying. You, Jeff, you don't understand. If I admit that I'm part of the problem, then that means I'm failed and I, I failed. And if I'm a failure, then God, then God what? wouldn't want you? No, 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 no. It is owning up that unleashes God's movement toward you. Because it is on his heart to restore those who return. Movement three of Nehemiah's prayer has to do with return. It's interesting. He reminds God of a promise that God had made. Remember, remember the instruction you gave to your servant Moses saying, if you people are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Don't think I won't do it. But, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, like living way over in Susa, I will gather them from there. I will bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And back in the day, that was Jerusalem where the temple had been. It is on the heart of God to restore those who are returning. Uh, 
what if saying, man, I messed up here is the very thing that unleashes God's movement toward you? Some of you are familiar with the teaching in our Bible is given by uh, uh, James, where James says, uh, if I say the first half, some of you know what the second half is. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. <laughs> draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's just beautiful. This is called restorative grace. And Jesus, like Jesus was like, like all about this. Uh, some of the heat that Jesus took was over the people that he ate with. And don't just think sitting down for a 15-minute meal. Often meals were long, multi-hour events. When Jesus is criticized for who he's eating with, he's being criticized for who he's befriending. And often it was people who were in return mode who had some pretty visible errors in their past. One guy by the name of Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus is called a chief tax collector. He's not just a tax collector. He was a tax collector in charge of other tax collectors. And back in the day, tax collection was little more than like legalized extortion. Jesus sees Zacchaeus, calls him by name, says, I want to eat at your house today. Zacchaeus welcomes him gladly. And you can just hear the mumbling go through the crowd. And the mumbling that you would find in Luke, I think it's Luke chapter 19, is this, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. And Jesus goes, exactly. <laughs> In fact, this is what Jesus says right here. He said, in that context, he says, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. I am on the lookout for people who are on the return. I've come to seek and to save people who have wildly lost their way. This is so critical because each and every one of us comes out of the womb looking for somebody who's looking for us and he was looking for us. He was looking for you. It is called restorative grace. It is on the heart of God to restore those who are returning. So he addresses God as capable and connected. And then he goes, we really messed up here. And he says, but it is on your heart to receive us back when we come back. And now he's going to get to part four, which is just the ask. He's got, and I, I got some, I need help. I need help now. I need help today. And I need help with something specific today. I think he's been fasting and he's been praying day after day, maybe for weeks. And finally he says, okay, okay, today's the day. And uh, check, out his check out his request with me here. He says this, uh, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Give me favor today as I approach this man. What man? What man? Then the last fragment of the chapter is this. I was cupbearer to the king. Ooh, that's new information. It, 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 Nehemiah not only has a governmental position, he has access to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And what his prayer is where he says, give me favor with this man today, he's saying, I need you to do the supernatural work of changing my boss's mind. That's why he's praying. Why does this action movie get interrupted with a prayer? It gets interrupted with a prayer because Nehemiah doesn't have the strength for what he's about to do. He, a lot of stuff's out of his control. He doesn't even have permission yet to go back to Jerusalem and start this rebuild. Uh, he says, I need strength beyond my strength. This can't happen through my own willpower. God, I need you to intercept me here. But I love the words, give me favor with this man. Give me favor. And uh, 
three word, a three-word prayer. I want to land on a three-word prayer today, which is just the expression, grant me favor. Grant me favor. Can, can I get you to whisper that with me if you can play along? Ready? Grant me favor. A three-word prayer you may need today. Grant me favor. God, grant me favor. So I apologize to my kids. Grant me favor. <laughs> grant me favor as I connect with two very close and very trusted friends. And tell them about a behavior that you need help moving beyond. Grant me favor, God, grant me favor, grant me favor. Grant me favor as I try to reach out to a counselor, grant me favor. Grant me favor as we rebuild our marriage. Grant me favor as I begin to navigate life alone. Grant me favor, grant me favor, grant me favor, grant me favor. It is a prayer to a God that is both capable and connected. So let's land here. Let me just ask you, of those four items, did one of them, uh, if we can go back to our list, back to our list of four, uh, did, did you have an aha moment with one of those? Is there one of those you just got to grab onto, latch onto, and have as you move into your week? The part about your vision of God and the whole principal's office thing, and you go, man, I, I got to work on that one. Because <laughs> I don't see God as gracious and approachable. The whole thing about owning up, and you go, man, I got to I gotta fess up because I was part of it. The part about return and restorative grace, does that need to skin deep? Or is it time just to plea? Because you're rebuilding now. Grant me favor, grant me favor, grant me favor. This won't give you all that you need for the entire rebuild. But I think how this story begins with the heart work before the construction work. Man, it just really gives us something that can get us started. And for many of us, that's what we needed today. Just some guidance in getting started. So let me ask you to stand here at Cascade and other campuses as well. I get to pray for us as we move into our week. Gracious Lord, I give thanks to every brother and sister who is here. I cannot imagine the stories and the rebuilding challenges in front of us. We need your strength. We need your hope. We need you to do in us and through us what we could never pull off on our own. Give us courage and wisdom as we begin to rebuild. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who came for us. Amen. We'll see you next week.